Welcome, everyone. Hello. It is, uh, it is that time, is it not? Um, just as a, uh, before I forget, I think that next week is communion. And it looks like the weather permitting, we will have it uh, communion and church the park. So that'll be a good thing. That'll be an awesome thing. And I, for one, will be bringing my swim trunks because I'm going to jump in the river. Yeah. Afterwards, after everything's done. But because uh, I did that on Tuesday after work, being having my body beat up, I went there and I just sat in that cool little pool of the river. And uh, I'm telling you what, there's some healing in that water. I woke up and felt fantastic for the next 45 minutes or so. It was like all the pain was just gone. It was wonderful. God is good. Amen. So this week, uh, we're going to hopefully finish up with uh, Isaiah 46. Um, we'll be covering verses 8 through 13. I've titled this week's message, very simply, The God We Don't Deserve. Um, as he's going through, and, and as we've uh, um, uh, gone through for the last couple of weeks, God is uh, calling out His people, and He's calling out the idolaters, and He's calling out to everyone all over the world, um, and that's one of the wonderful things about God is He doesn't limit um, anyone from knowing Him. He reveals Himself, as we're going to see, and He does as He pleases. And that is uh, something that we should take into consideration. It's on the heels of God challenging the reader and the listener to whom uh, uh, will you compare God, if you remember that from last week. He was asking that question, who are you going to compare me with? Who are you going to liken me to? Um, it's a very good question. It's uh, obviously a rhetorical question because there's no one. You can't compare to God to anyone or anything. And he continues through the prophet in a very descriptive and straightforward language to ask the question that should matter to us most. Namely, who is God? What is God? Where is God? All those questions that we have about God, those are the questions that he answers and he has answered in these last several chapters, verse, uh, chapters 40 through uh, 46 where we're at. God seemingly has these um, things that he wants people everywhere to know about him. And as I said last week, I believe it was Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I was trying to find that quote for sure, but it's one, it's one of his uh, writings and one of the books that he's, he's written. He said about God, he says, if you've imagined God in your mind, then you've imagined God, the God of your imagination. And it's really true. It's a true statement when you think about it, because what he's saying is very simply, we have the means by which we can know God. And that is found strictly in his word and nowhere else. And so when he's talking about this, um, when Martin Lloyd-Jones mentioned that, he said there's people who have imaginations about what God is. And, and how many of us have had conversations with people, well, my God would never, or my God would. Um, even yesterday, I was watching Jesse Lee Peterson, an old cl older clip, and he was talking to a pastor who was... Uh, um, he was a, a pastor who claimed to be a pastor, claimed to be a Christian, but he also said that he was very much so a homosexual. 
And so Jesse Lee Peterson was asking him some questions about God. And he was, he was uh, the, the guy actually got up and left after a few minutes because Jesse Lee Peterson was asking him some straightforward questions. He says, do you really believe that God would accept that, that that's, that's okay? Where does he say that? Where does God say that it's okay to be that? And he was asking him some other questions. And, and the point being is this guy had a God of his own imagination. His God accepts that because that's what he prefers. That's his likeness. And in fact, he said that's the way that, quote unquote, God made him. It's a God of his imagination. It's not the God of the Bible. Far from it. And we deal with that on a daily basis here in our state. There's an idea of God that's bandied about, but it's not the God that we know. It's a different God. And it's okay to say, well, that's not the God that I'm talking about. Because it's, cl- it's a good thing to make that distinction. So what do, we, what do I believe? And that, that's even the, the more important question is, what do I believe about God and why? Why do I believe that? Hopefully your answer is because the Word says so. Because He's revealed Himself as such. And when we deviate from this to identify or try to explain who God is, we're walking on very shaky ground, if not dangerous ground, because He has given us everything that we need to know about Him. Um, It's sufficient. And even though it's not exhaustive, it's not an exhaustive uh, understanding about a description of who God is, because how could you do that? How could you fully exhaustively explain who God is, and and God could explain himself, but he's given us sufficient information about himself, and he wants us to know him this way. And in the last five chapters, it's been over and over again, and it almost sounds like I'm beating a dead horse, because it sounds like I'm preaching the same message almost every week. But it's the same thing that he's done in these uh, few chapters, and this will be the last time that we, you know, he not the last time that God will say that he's God alone. Don't get me wrong. But this chorus that he seemingly has been singing and uh, speaking through Isaiah. Um, So we ask that question, what do I believe about God? And seriously, think about that. What is it that you believe about God? Is it biblical? And I think that's an important question that we have to ask. Last week I, talk, I talked about the disappointment of, of hearing somebody on the, on the radio, a uh, pastor that's fairly local, and trying to squeeze evolution in with creation and making the two fit together. And it's like, no, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. And why don't you have somebody that can counter the point that you're making or bring in somebody that can talk about it in a different way so that at least do that and balance it out and let the people decide? Um, Because, as I said last week, and as I've said often when I'm talking about creation, um, the reason I reject evolution, because evolution, um, it requires mutation. Mutation never adds information. It always takes away information. And it's kind of a trial and error thing. And our God is not a trial and error God. He simply calls things into being, and he's perfect in everything that he does, and he doesn't need trial and error. It's not like he's trying to figure it out. And that's the conclusion that I was coming to when, as I was listening to it, and I, I suffered through it yesterday <laughs> as I was listening to it. 
again, the second part of that, uh, that discussion that they were having. And this is, I think, the third or fourth week that they had different people talking about it. It's like, what God is that? What, what, how, how does that work? How do, how do you actually, um, how do you work that out in your mind? You know, if it's billions and billions and billions of years, when did death happen? How do, how do you fit that into that worldview? That doesn't make sense. Because it says that when they rebelled and partook of the fruit that God told them not to, Adam and Eve, the original people, that's when death came in. And that's what the Bible says. Paul believed that. Jesus definitely taught that. And I don't understand. Like, what God are you talking about? That's not the God that I know. The God that I know just called it into being, and bam, it was. As we did, as we said a couple of weeks ago, in, uh, where he says, I made the earth, and I made it to be inhabited. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't just, you know, spin it and start it going and then wait to see what happened. No, that's not our God. And remember the main points that he makes here. Um, that, that God is declaring to all the ends of the earth. And that, that I love about God. He doesn't just stay with just the people of Israel. He calls to all of the ends of the earth um, in these last six chapters that He alone is God and there is no other. That's the main point that He's making. He wants all people everywhere to know. Um, in the uh, election cycle and political means, we have a person that is running um, for president, Vivek Ramaswamy, I think is his name. And when he talks about um, America, I, I really agree with a lot of the stuff that he says, except for when it comes to one thing. And he talks about God. He talks about God a lot. And he talks about rightly the fact that this country was founded on the idea of God and, and what it is that we believe and how we believe as, as Americans and how this country was founded. The problem that I have is, what God are you talking about? Uh, and for the longest time, for these several months now, I've been wondering, is this guy a Christian? What, what is he? He's not, he talks about God, but... Well, it turns out, I heard an interview that he had, and it turns out he's a Hindu. So it's like, well, which one of the many hundreds of millions of God are you talking about? And you're talking about him in, in a singular term. You, you say God, but what God are you talking about? And nobody challenges him on that. I would definitely be in trouble with him because I'd say... What God are you talking about? Which one of the billions of gods or millions of gods, however many you guys have, are you talking about? Because I know the God that I'm talking about, and it's not the God that you're talking about. And so people have their ideas of who God is, and God is very plainly in these chapters says, I am God and I'm God alone. I'm the maker of heaven and earth. Remember these points. The main point is God is declaring to all the earth that He alone is God and that there is no other. Then he adds that he alone is the creator. On top of being God, he's the one who created. He creates what? Everything. And as God alone, he has singularly, by his own power and knowledge and wisdom, he has created the heavens and the earth. He didn't need anybody's help. He didn't have to, have to ask anybody. That's the second point that he makes over and over and over and over again. I've done these things. This is how I did it. This is, I did it because it was my good pleasure to do so. And because I could. 
And really, what the, that's what it comes down to. Is God said, I made it because I could, because I can. And I did it. Additionally, he includes as, uh, that as creator, he's the maker of all the nations. So on top of being the creator, he's the one who formed all the nations. He formed the tribes. He formed the peoples. He formed the tongues. He did all of these things, and he included in his declaration that he is the, the, uh, the former, meaning the shaper, the molder of them, all these nations, and in particular, the sovereign nation of Israel. He says, I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who called you from the womb. I'm the one who carried you. If you remember a few weeks ago, he says, I'm the one who born you. And that word born is not the word B-O-R-N. It's B-O-R-N-E. In other words, he carried them. He made them who they are. And that's the third point that he makes. And finally, in my opinion, this is probably the most important, at least for us, that he makes is that He is God and Creator as El, Elohim, El Elyon, is Savior. He is the salvation. The only means of salvation that we can know or ever, or ever will experience. That's what He does over and over again in these chapters. I'm God, I'm the Creator, I'm the former of nations, maker of people, and I'm the only salvation that there is. There is no other. And these are the main points that he makes throughout. And here he continues in that same language through the prophet. Um, we're, we're in verses um, 8 through 13. So starting in verse 8 of chapter 46, he says this. He says, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. This is why I said he just uses straightforward language. He calls everybody that he's talking about transgressors. Uh, it's, it's mindful of that uh, uh, passage in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am El, and there is no other Elohim. There is no one like me. So I am God, there is no other God. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. And there's those I references, those singular pronouns where he says... I'm the one who's going to do this. I've spoken it. Now I'm going to do it. Now you're going to see it. Because he says in verse 12, Listen to me, you stubborn-minded, who are far from righteousness. <laughs> I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will grant salvation in Zion, and my glory for Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness and for how you love us. Thank you that you are the creator of life and that you are the sustainer. You provide, you sustain, and life originates from you. And we know this. We know it well. Without you, there could be no life and there would be no life. 
We thank you that you are the one who has to declare it. Forgive us, Lord, for being the stupid people that we are, that we have to be reminded continually of this because we're so fallen in our nature. But we thank you, Lord, above all things, that you did bring salvation near, so near that you sent your Son onto this earth, into your creation. He came into his own creation, and he exemplifies what salvation is. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, most of all. We thank you that you are our God and that we can know you and that you've given us sufficient information so that we may know you aright. We may know you as you have uh, desired and commanded us to know you, as you are, and not as our own vain imaginations may think. Help us to know this, Lord, and help us to explain that. And help us to get it right in our minds and in our hearts that we may know that you are the God of salvation, the God who saves and the God who is, the God who was and the God who will be. We thank you, Lord, for all of these things because you are awesome and great in all your ways. Thank you for the power of your love that transforms lives like ours. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. We bless you. Open up your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So he reasons as he opens. He reasons with rebels and the ungodly. And praise God for that. Because that's how he reached us, right? That's how he reached out to us. He called us out as we were rebels and ungodly. He says, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. So we're to recall this, we're to remember, we're to, we're to be The only way that we're going to be assured is by recalling it. One of the main ways to engage in the pursuit or understanding of God is to recall the mind to the mind the things that God has done, not only in the past, but how He has declared them before they are, those things that He has said that they will be, how they were, and, and then how the things declared came about just as foretold by Him. And not only that, as believers... Um, Oftentimes, I look back in my history of my life, and I see those instances where at the time it didn't seem like God was there because I had no clue about God. But I can look back now, as they say, hindsight is twenty-twenty, and you can see instances where God was indeed there all along. And you can't do that until you begin to know Him and to see Him as he is. I remember explaining this once to a friend, and they were not a believer, and so they said, well, a lot of that's just coincidence. I'm like, uh, no, there's no coincidence. These things played themselves out, and I can look back and replay that tape, and I can see how God set things up in order to help me in my time of need. That's what he did. That's how he did it. And he did it because he can. And, and that's one of the things that, that we're told is to recall to our minds these things. He says, remember the former things long past. For I am God. I am El, the mighty one in the Hebrew. He says, I am El, the mighty one. And there is no other. I am God. And there is no one like me. 
That's what he says. Again, he, re, he uh, uh, declares this, that there's no one like him. And in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah, he writes about this. And if you know what lamentations are, what are lamentations? He's lamenting. It's almost like complaining, but not quite. It's like, ah, why is this happening? All these things. There was judgment that was, going, uh, that was happening. Jeremiah was in the midst of it. And he was trying to warn his people of the judgments and to change their ways. And for it, he got a great deal. He got beaten, he got spit upon, he got thrown into a, a, a pit. He had all these things happen to him. So he's lamenting these things and wondering what's going on. And in the midst of it, this has been one of the go-to uh, passages that has really transformed a lot of my prayer life because I go to this so often. It just pops in. It's Lamentations 3, 21 through 26. And Jeremiah, in his Lamentations, he's talking about all the awful things that are coming about. And then all of a sudden, he like all of a sudden has a clarity of mind and he goes, this I recall to my mind. This is verse 21 of Lamentations 3. This I recall to my mind. Notice, that's the first thing he does. He recalls it. He's in the midst of, of trouble. He's in the midst of all this these chaos and all these things that are going on around him. And he's not understanding, but then he goes, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness, His chesed, or as I put here in parentheses, His lavishing love, Indeed, never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Then he says, as he's recalling this to his mind, he says in verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. So what Isaiah is saying here is true. It, what he's, he's been speaking, to recall it to, to the mind. And Jeremiah was a transgressor, just like we are. And so it fits. And first of all, he recalls it to his mind, and it brings him some kind of peace. It gives him back a, uh, we had a saying back in the 80s, to get a grip. It helps him get a grip on reality, a grip on what's really going on, that in spite of all these things, there is still a God. And it's a God who saves. And it's a God who can save. And it's a God who does save. And it's a God who will save. And that's what he remembers. And he says, it's good. It's good for those. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. In other words, don't be in a hurry. Wait on God. Trust in Him. Even when it seems like, I can't wait anymore. i got to do something. Sometimes we just have to do that. Just wait. Wait on Him. And it says, he, the Lord is good to those who wait on Him, who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. That's the other thing that we need to do. But we have to know Him before we can seek Him. Right? Because... No one seeks after God. If we look back in our sinful life in our B.C. era, 
uh, when we were partying, we weren't looking for God. When we were committing all kinds of immorality, we weren't looking for God. We were never looking for God. He wasn't even in our conscience. He was just not there. But as believers, we have that privilege of being able to do that now. To seek after Him. He says in verse 10 of 11, back in uh, uh, Isaiah 46, declaring the end from the beginning, he says, as God, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Now that, that we can uh, take to the bank, and that we can thank God, because what He has begun in you, He will finish it. That is one thing that we can take away from all the things that Scripture tells us is the work that He began in us, He will finish it. And that's good news because it's not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon Him. And He never fails. His compassion never fails. He says, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. It's God's good pleasure to save us to the uttermost. That glorifies Him. And that should make us gleeful almost when we think about it. Because that's what He's purposed, to save us, ultimately. Then when He says here in verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. He's reminding of his people that in the future, there's going to be this pagan king that we've talked about a lot, Cyrus. Cyrus is about 150 years off, and God is speaking specifically to his people to remind them when the time comes that what he has spoken will come to pass. That this bird of prey, if you will, um, will come about, this Cyrus that he's spoken of that didn't even exist except in the mind of God that he would come and he would be the man of my purpose as it says in verse 11 from a far country then he says if that's not enough he says I have spoken truly I've spoken truly I will bring it to pass I have planned it surely I will do it in the uh, in one of the commentaries, the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges, it says the supreme illustration of the foreknowledge and power of Yahweh is the raising up of Cyrus. Cyrus is compared to a ravenous bird on account of the celerity of his movements. Just as Nebuchadnezzar had been likened to an eagle, there can hardly be an allusion to the fact if it be a fact, that the royal ensign of Persia was a golden eagle. It's a bird of prey. And that's what he's saying. He says, look, I've said that this is going to happen, and here's what's going to happen. Because he said it. Because he declared it. Because he's going to make it come to pass. These are the things that, that he has, saying, he has said that, that are going to come to pass. And he also says this. When he's talking about this where he says that I am God and there is no other God besides me, he says in the first place, he says I am El, and which is, means the mighty one. 
when he says this, he says he's the mighty one and then he's the omnipotent one. He's Elohim, the Godhead in all its fullness. So he's not just saying that he's just El, but he's Elohim. He's including the two different words in the Hebrew. And they described the fullness of who God is as he has made himself known to be. He says in verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. This is one of the reasons why I say that he speaks in very straightforward language. He doesn't have a problem calling people unrighteous. He doesn't have a problem calling people sinners. Um, And he says, listen to me, you stubborn-minded. He knows the minds of men. He says, you're stubborn-minded. Talks about the, you know, the Bible tells us about our hearts. And one of the things that Jesus never said was follow your heart. Um, he just doesn't. It's a, it's a fallacy. People believe that, but it's, and I, I hear this all the time. Well, just follow your heart. Or here's the other one that I hear in Christian circles. Well, God knows my heart. That's a scary thing. <laughs> right? It's not, it's not something that, that is, is a good thing. That's something that is, uh, can be a very bad thing. These are the, the transgressors, um, the, the stubborn of heart. These are the transgressors. They're the ones who, even though they hear the word, they won't respond to it. They can't respond to it. They're stubborn-hearted. They're hard-hearted. Um, in verse 13, he says, I bring near my righteousness... It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. So the rebellious people in Isaiah 65, just kind of a peek into the uh, future portion of Scripture. In Isaiah 65, this is what's awesome about what God just declared in verse 13. I bring my righteousness near. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. Um, in verse in chapter 65, verse 1 through 4, this is how Isaiah writes. And this is God speaking through him. He says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. Think about that. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. Because there's no one who seeks after God. And he says, I permit myself to be sought. God does something in the heart of man in order to draw him. I know that's what he did with me, and I know that's what he did with others. Just all of a sudden, you just change. Something happens within you. And that's what he says. He says, I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. They weren't looking for him. But he says, I permit myself to do that. In other words, he reveals himself in one form or another. And I don't mean that just as, you know, in a literal sense, but in some cases it is through visions, through dreams, through thoughts, through people, and through the church primarily. He permits himself to be found by those who weren't seeking him. He says, I said, here I am, here I am. It sounds almost like God is playing hide-and-seek. And all of a sudden, he says, here I am, here I am. Here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. 
I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. Or you could actually put in there, following their own hearts. A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. In other words, God says, I'm speaking out to a people who are rebellious, who are idolaters, but I'm still seeking them. And that should make us all warm and fuzzy inside. Because God seeks us in spite of who we are. Moving to the New Testament, in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes this clearly. And he says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now that's an important thing to think about. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, he's not waiting. It's almost like what he's saying here, I permitted myself to be sought. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's very clear Paul's understanding of how salvation worked. God saves the ungodly. God saves the unredeemed. God saves the sinner. And he saves them while they're sinners. He says, for one, one, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates His love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So God saves while we were enemies. And He does something within the heart to change us. In Romans chapter 7, again, Paul says this, um, verses 4 through 6. He says, So my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined um, to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, but now we have been released from the law, having died to what or to that by which we were constrained, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So he revives us, he brings us to life by the spirit and not by the letter of the law. Jesus says something similar in John chapter 6 that's recorded for us. He says, all that the Father, in verse 37 through 45, all that the Father gives me come to me. And no one who comes to me, I will, and the one who comes to me, um, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, 
that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So God is busy doing something providentially within the hearts of men to draw them to the Son. That's how he works. That's what he does. And I take great comfort in Jesus when he says, All that the Father gives me, I will lose nothing. Because those who have been given can't be lost. And he says he's the one who's made it possible. He's the one who uh, allowed himself to be found by those who weren't even seeking him. And I know that's my, that's, that's, that's my testimony. I wasn't looking for God. Because he wasn't the one that was lost. I was. And he found me right where I was at, at the moment that I needed him most. And then in John chapter 6, going a little bit further, he reiterates this in uh, verses 60 through 66. He says, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? Of course, he's talking about the ascension. He says, The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. So God has to be the instrument by which we come to him. And then in verse 66, Peter says this, as a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. The point being is that this salvation that God offers with man, it's impossible. We cannot save ourselves. We don't have the means by which we can be saved. There's nothing in us that would save us. There's nothing that we can offer God that He would save us. And when Jesus is is talking about this to to His disciples in Matthew chapter 19, I'll let you read that. Matthew 19, he's, he's talking about the, the rich young ruler. And then at the end, he says it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to be saved. And the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? These guys can't be saved. Who's going to be saved? And Jesus' answer is amazing. He says, with 
people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, we need God. I want to finish with this in Ezekiel 36. Because Ezekiel speaks clearly of the gospel. And he speaks of the process by which God will do what he does in saving people. And remember that the very name of Jesus, Yeshua, is the Hebrew word for salvation. That literally means salvation. He is salvation. In Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, Ezekiel records this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to do my judgments. God is in control. That's what he's saying. Notice, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to do my judgments. That's salvation. That's what he does. He puts a new spirit within us. He puts a new heart in us. And all of a sudden, we're changed. We're never the same. We never go back. Those who are truly His will never go back. They may have moments of confusion. They may have moments of disappointment. They may have moments of failure. But He will never lose you. He will never lose you. He will hold on to you forever because you belong to Him. Because this is what He has done. And like He says right here, this, is, this sounds like New Testament stuff, but it's Old Testament. I will put my spirit within you. I'll give you, I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's the original heart surgeon. He gives us a new heart. This fits exactly into what uh, is being preached by Isaiah. Here in the end of the chapter, that is uh, that God in His infinite mercy and compassion, His chesed, His everlasting merciful loving kindness, as David loves to say. He's reminded of that. It's His everlasting merciful loving kindness. I write it down as one big long word. Because that's the way that David addresses God in many of the the instances in the Psalms. He will do what is impossible with man. He will do what is only possible with God. And that is to save ungodly people. That is to save sinners from their sin, from the penalty of their sin. God is the one who does it because He is able to do it. What is it that you think about God? How do you think about God? And why do you think those thoughts? My encouragement to you today is just read His Word and make sure that when you're talking about God and when you're praying to God and when you're speaking to others about God, that you're speaking of God in right terms. And if you're not sure, go make sure. Because God has clearly clearly told us who He is. 
He's made those points very clear, four very clear, distinct points. That He is God alone, that He is the Creator, that He is the one who formed everything and all the peoples. And He calls out to all the people of the world. And finally, that He alone is salvation and there's salvation found in no one else. Those are the things that we need to understand about God that are the most important, seemingly to Him. Other than the fact that He is holy. He is holy and therefore we should worship Him. He's worthy for worship. How do you think about God? What do you think about God? And why do you think that way about God? Is it the biblical way? Or is it a God of your imagination? That's the ultimate question. And if you want to know who God is, then you must, as he said earlier in uh, chapter 45, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You have to bow the knee. You have to. Do it on this side. Don't wait to the other side. You won't like having to be bowing down then. Kneel to Him. Confess Him as Lord and believe in Him. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for Your goodness and Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You for how You love us. We thank You, Lord, that um, even when we weren't looking for You, even when we didn't have a thought about You, You allowed Yourself to be found. You allowed Yourself to be sought after, even by us. Lord, I pray that you're doing the same thing because I know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We pray that you would do the same thing, even over the uh, interweb. Father, we pray that you would just have your way, that you would reveal yourself to whomever you please and do your good pleasure. And we know that one of those pleasures is simply to save lost people like us so that we can be redeemed and that we can know, know you and that we can walk in the new spirit of, of life, in the newness of life, with a new spirit and a new heart, as only you can give. Thank you, Lord, for all of these words. Thank you that they are more than words, but they are truth. Thank you that we can be assured that you do save, and that you are salvation. Thank you that you are our final destination to be in your presence is what we desire most. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we bless you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.